Take your Bible, if you will, and turn with me to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking there at the passage we were looking at last Sunday and um, talking about deacons. You know, it was a Sunday evening prayer service, and the senior pastor of this particular church was spotlighting the ministry of a local crisis pregnancy, pregnancy center, very similar to the one we have in the Richmond area. Uh, this pr- crisis pregnancy center had contacted the church and just asking if there's a couple or uh, someone in the church that could assist a, a young couple who was pregnant and, and trying to just decide what to do. And they'd actually made the decision to keep the baby and they wanted somebody to come alongside of them. And so one of the deacon couples, one of the deacons and his wife volunteered. And so they met with Carla and her boyfriend. In fact, uh, Carla and the deacon's wife became very close as the months uh, went on. Uh, unfortunately, the boyfriend excused himself from the situation and so left her by herself. So Carla was asking a lot of questions. She was really uh, leaning in on this deacon couple and, and wanting wise counsel, like how in the world do you uh, do life? How, how in the world do you raise a, a young child? How do you do all of this while working a job, arranging child care, and, and just simply attempting to be sane? If you're a parent, you know what that means. Amazingly, over the course of several months, Carla's heart began to warm to the gospel. She actually embraced Jesus, the Lord and Savior. She was baptized. She became a member of the church, which further enabled the couple to connect her with even more brothers and sisters in that local congregation that she had not yet met. They got a front row seat to watch Carla grow in her new faith. Now, this didn't happen immediately, like any of us. It took some time. It was about a one-year time a span of time before uh, Carla had heard the gospel and believed on Jesus as Lord and Savior, and yet it was an amazing thing. This particular deacon was a part of the practical member care team. There is his church. That was his responsibility as a deacon. And as such, he would occasionally come before, before their church and just share needs, ask for people to help, ask for volunteers, ask for resources. And on one such appeal, there was a member in the church who had a car that he was thinking about selling or trading, but hearing this need, decided, I don't want to sell it or trade it. I want to donate it. So we contacted this deacon and his wife and shared what he wanted to do. And so the deacon was able to connect him with Carla and that generous church member was able to bless this young single mom with a good working car for free. The deacon and his wife were privileged throughout this whole process to walk with Carla, to see her steps, walking with her through the darkest of days. It wasn't a quick fix. And they didn't do it alone. And that's where I want to drive the train at in this story. This deacon and wife were able to be sort of the spearhead. They were the leading servants in this ministry, but it was a church-wide effort as they all collectively ministered to this young lady, this young single mom, invested in her, saw her to come to know Jesus, and begin to grow in that new faith. This is just one of many stories that Matt Smethers shares in his book highlighting the ministry of deacons. And today as we move on into message number two in this three-part series on deacons, uh, I want us to talk about the responsibility of deacons. You know, as I mentioned last week, it's likely that your perspective on deacons in the church has largely been shaped by experience, whether that's good or bad. But as a, a, a Bible people, as individual believers in a church, we want to make sure that way, the way we understand anything comes from the Bible, not 
just experience. Experience is healthy, experience is good, but it only is good and healthy as long as it's built on the foundation of the Word of God, what God teaches about this. And so for that reason, we're taking these three Sundays, last week, today, and next week, and we're using them to learn and better understand this office in the local church. One of the reasons we're doing this is because this summer we're looking at restructuring and redeploying our deacon ministry, uh, giving them a wider, uh, better approach to ministry. We believe that this change is going to enable our deacons to better serve the body of Christ, better benefit the body of Christ, which better benefits the community as well. We, we want to allow them to serve not just in one small box and saying this is how deacons serve, but no, use their giftedness, use their passions, and put them to use that way. So next Sunday evening in a special called members meeting, uh, there'll be no voting next Sunday. It's more informational than anything else. We will vote to affirm next month in our uh, quarterly annual members meeting at the m- end of m- the month of August. But next Sunday night, we're going to lay out what this transition, this redeployment will encompass. And so in preparation for that meeting, and in order for us to better understand the office, what we're doing over these three Sundays is teaching on roles, responsibilities, and next Sunday, the requirements of these leading servants. Now, last Sunday, I let out on all this, and I just want to, I know not everyone was here, and, and I don't expect everyone, well, let me say it this way. I know not everyone, when you miss, will watch the service. Uh, I kind of catch up. I expect that, but I know you're not going to do that. So just, you know, food for thought. I would encourage you to just go back and, and just stay on, stay on target with where the rest of us. It will bless and benefit you. But if you missed last week, I just want to kind of bring you up to speed with what the Bible says about deacons. In the New Testament, we see two offices for the local church. They are the elders. So there's really three terms that work synonymously there. There is the term that, is, that we translate elders. There's the term that we translate overseers. And then there's the term that we would translate pastor or shepherds. And so those three terms are used synonymously, specifically two passages use them. And I shared that last week. That's the first office. They work together for one office. The second office is what we would call the deacons. So that term that is used there often in the New Testament is diakonos. It's most of the time translated as servant or minister, but it also is used in reference to this particular office in the church, the deacons. And so we're talking about this, this, these three Sundays. You know, one of the first times we see this particular term used in this sense of a servant is in Acts chapter 6, the passage we're going to look at again this morning. And and so there in Acts 6, you probably remember, the apostles found themselves really on the verge of a crisis. There was a major rift taking place in the church. And what was going on there was the Hellenistic Jewish widows were being neglected the daily distribution of food. You say, who are the Hellenistic Jewish widows? That simply means Greek-speaking Jewish widows in the church were not getting the distribution of food that the Hebraic or Hebrew-speaking Jews were getting. And I talked about the fault line, the, the ethnic cultural differences there that were feeding into that. And so what happened was the apostles told the church to select seven godly men who were full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, and give this responsibility to them. 
And so what we see in Acts chapter 6 is not the deacon office, but we see a foreshadowing of what the deacon office would later become. become. So 30 years after what we read in Acts chapter 6, when Paul's pinning this letter that we call 1 Timothy to Timothy, instructing this young pastor on how to lead the church, he talks about deacons as an office. And so what happened in those 30 years was the church continued to grow, needs continued to increase, and so there needed to be an official position to take care of specific needs, thus the rise of the diaconate, the deacon role office in the life of the local church. And so what we see here is a foreshadowing of what would later become official deacons, but they model for us spiritual virtue and service. We can learn from this passage how deacons ought to function in the life of the local church, and that's how we're looking at it this morning. So these two offices of the church, elders and deacons, described and prescribed in the New Testament are, as we've been talking about, this is what the offices are. This is who the offices are. And so as we try to understand how these leaders within the structure operate together, I, I gave a word picture last week that I want to kind of reiterate. So as we try to understand how elders and deacons, and even for us today, because modern church is even a little different, we typically have a staff team when the church is of any size. Sort of the day in, day out type of duties are done by the staff. And so the word picture I used last week, which I borrowed from, from Matt in his book, is this. Elders sort of cast the vision. Elders say, all right, here's where we're going as a church. This is the journey we're on. This is the destination we're headed for. The staff team at our church comes alongside that and drives the bus, right? We've got some students about to go to camp. There's got to have a driver that gets them from destination A to destination B. The staff team are the ones who drive the bus. Well, what is the role for the deacons? How do they play their part in this beautiful picture of church health? They're the ones who make sure there's fuel in the tank. They're taking care of needs along the way so that the staff team and the membership and everybody involved can get from point A to point B, the destination cast out and set forth by the leadership, the elders of the church. I hope that makes sense. So this morning, what we're going to do is build upon the roles that we examined last week by looking at the responsibilities of these leading servants. We're going to look at Acts chapter 6. Again, so if you got it there, let's read verses 1 through 7. Then I'm going to come back, say a few things about the passage, and then lay out these three responsibilities that are on your bulletin this morning. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint about the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole congregation or the gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We see a beautiful thing happening here in this 
passage. The church continues to grow. The church takes on greater structure, which fosters greater ministry. And everyone involved is healthy and happy. And that's where we want to be. So in order to really understand the full gamut of what's happening here, you got to know the backstory. I've mentioned some of that. But how did we get to this point in the early church? How do we get to where we are, what we just read in Acts chapter 6? Well, if you remember in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and, and immediately there's 3,000 added. So there it went from a, a small grouping of believers waiting for the Spirit of God, and, and all of a sudden in one moment, you've got a mega church on your hands. 3,000 are added to the congregation. So there's a lot of needs there. It continues to grow. Acts chapter 2 ends with them with Luke telling us that the, the believers were setting under the teaching of the word of God, setting under the teaching of the apostles, and it continued to reach and, and develop new believers in their faith. So it continues to grow. Well, then you got a few problems that come along. Persecution, internal corruption. You see that in Acts chapters 3 and 4. You see the internal corruptions in chapter 5 and how the apostles responded to that. Then we come to chapter 6, and you've got this other faction taking place. The, the, the first two uh, are dealt with in, in, in a much different way. It was very outward. It was very confrontational. I mean, Peter calls down Ananias and Sapphira, and they die right there on the, on the spot. If you, if you want to know that story, look at Acts chapter 5. There's persecution at the back end of chapter 5 as well as chapter 4, and the apostles stand and basically have a staring contest, a standoff with the high priest. And yet in this situation, in Acts chapter 6, the apostles don't do that. They don't come and just... You know, kind of put their fist down and say, this is the way it's going to be. They look at the church and say, we need to have a different approach to this. Here's what we're supposed to do. We know what we're supposed to do as apostles. It's to minister the word. So go select seven men. Here's the type of guy you ought to look for, the type of servant you ought to look for, and let them do it. Task them with the responsibility of meeting these needs to curb the fraction that's taking place in the church. So what we have here in Acts chapter 6 is a story of church conflict handled very well. And the reasons it's handled well is because of these seven who deaconed well. So along those lines, last week we offered four observations about this. First, we saw that the selection of the seven prioritized preaching and teaching. In other words, it enabled the apostles to focus on their primary responsibility given to them by the Lord. Preaching, teaching the word of God. Second, we see the congregation was involved in the process. This was not some sort of unilateral decision where the apostles said, all right, uh, you three here, I need you three over here, and yeah, you back there, go fix this problem. This is how you do it. That's not the way they handled it. It was church involvement. We see this beautiful picture of congregationalism taking place here. In essence, what we see in Acts 6 is the church's first members meeting, and it didn't blow up in a fight. They weren't fighting over carpet colors. Third observation is the type of character the seven needed was laid out. It was mandated. They were to look for servants who had a good reputation, men who were full of the Holy Spirit, who had wisdom. And then the fourth observation is the selection of the seven 
to serve in conjunction with the apostles, what it did is it divided out the labor. It spread out the work, which fostered efficiency and ensured each group could focus on their responsibility. It wasn't the apostles, which would later become the elders, because this is foreshadowing of what would later take place in the structure of the church. It wasn't the pastor and the pastors doing everything. It's us doing it together, deacons, elders, congregation. It's dividing out the labor of the ministry. And so from these observations, it becomes apparent that the deacons serve two roles within the church. Last week we said they, they serve as shock absorbers, muffling the, the reverberation that takes place when there's conflict, the, the reverberation that threatens unity in the church. We also see that they love solutions more than drama, which was needed there because of the Hellenist widows feeling neglected. They could have got in that drama and stirred it up. Yeah, you are neglected. Yeah, you aren't getting... Look at that. She got more food than you. They didn't get in all of that drama. And how easy is it for us to want to get drawn into the drama? They said, no, here's a problem. Let's fix it. So we see that they're shock absorbers absorbing that, not allowing that drama to reverberate back uh, or, or continue further, but instead they're absorbing it and then they're working to solve the problem. They're problem solvers. And so the selection of these seven and the solution that they enacted resulted, I, what I love, it, it was what we see in verse seven, it resulted in further gospel advancement. It says that the word of God continued to increase. So verse 7 tells us that it, it continued to increase. In other words, the church continued to multiply. See, if the apostles had not recognized that the best thing that they could do in this situation is not step out to meet the needs of the urgent, but to continue to stay where they are supposed to be, in their lane, preaching, teaching, dealing with the doctrine, dealing with the structure, dealing with the leadership of the church, saying others need to handle these other things. If they had not done that, the church would have become stagnant. The ministry would have become stagnant. There wouldn't have been a multiplication. At best, there would be an addition as the gospel advanced. So what we see in this passage is that it highlights for us the blessing and the beautiful gift that deacons are to the church. So let's look again at this passage closely. And building on those two roles, I want to share with you three responsibilities. And again, I'm going to borrow some of these points, if not all these points, from Matt's book. He just lays it out so articulately. Uh, I, I, this is where I've landed on the role of deacons for many, many years, and I love how he lays it out in such concise, um, instructive terms. And so here's the first responsibility we see of deacons. They spot and satisfy tangible needs. Deacons spot and satisfy tangible needs. Now, it's mid to latter part of July, which means you're due for a football illustration, right? Like, there's nothing on TV sports-wise to watch right now. We have nothing except for baseball. I know Major League Baseball, and some of you guys are big into that. I'm not. So for me, there's no sports, and so I'm just watching hunting shows because they're back on. Uh, but football is right around the corner, and I'm a college guy. And so just in a, just a matter of weeks, our, our college teams are going to begin to report to camp, and things are going to get kick, kicking off, and, and, and we're all going to be excited about that. Every team's going to kind of launch out into the season thinking we're going to have full stadiums, and we're going to win the national championship this year. That's what they are planning to do. And so that's right around the corner. What comes before that is media days. And so every conference has their own version of media days. 
Uh, you know that I'm an SEC fan. I'm an Arkansas Razorback fan. And so SEC media days, I believe, is next week. It may be this coming week. Uh, but it, it's right here. And so what happens at SEC Media Days is those 14 teams in the conference, just like every other conferences, are going to fly their maybe top three, four best players in with the coach. They're going to sit down and do a, a roundtable of discussions with different media people and talk about the upcoming season. It's always interesting for me as I watch those uh, media days of who, which player, which positions get brought by the coach. It's usually upperclassmen, unless there's just a star as a freshman or sophomore, usually upperclassmen, but it's typically skilled positions, right? I've always thought that's a funny term for football, even though I was a skilled player because I'm not a large guy. Uh, but they're skilled players. So they're quarterbacks, they're running backs, they're uh, maybe secondary players, they're receivers. Uh, every once in a while, you'll get a quote-unquote non-skilled player. What is a non-skilled player, right? It's a lineman right? Which makes no sense. Because if you know football, the most important people on the field are the linemen. You, you don't have any quarterback worth anything or a running back or a receiver if you can't block for those people to do what they're supposed to do. The linemen are the most important people on the field. So those poor old guys usually don't get invited to media days, and yet they're the most important person and group there on the field. Deacons are like the congregation's offensive linemen. Their job is to guard and advance the ministry of the word, which is exactly what the seven here are doing in Acts chapter 6. So the inequitable distribution of food, how I was not being distributed fairly, has stirred up this serious complaint. It's exposed its very sensitive fault line within the church. And so the situation is urgent. Something had to be done. And thankfully, the apostles, again, possessed the conviction to understand, here's our lane. We need to stay in it. So let's get some other guys to go and get in that lane to fix and to meet those tangible needs. You see, if the elders had, or the apostles had not understood this, then they would have been putting the word of God on the back burner in order to minister to the urgent, which would literally gut the very heart of the church. I mean, think about what a church is. It's built upon the preaching, teaching of the word of God. It's not built upon meeting tangible needs. In saying that, I'm not devaluing tangible needs, but you cannot meet those needs and still have a church, not a real healthy church, but it's still a church. But if you're just a social gospel without a theological gospel, you have no gospel. You tracking with me? So the apostles understood this is the lane we have to be in. So there needs to be someone else, someone else in that other lane that's working in conjunction with us so that we can meet tangible needs, spot and meet them, satisfy them, but also free us up to do what we're supposed to do as the apostles. And so the apostles spotted this need, came up with a solution to satisfy it. Story here from early history, church history shows us how important deacons are to spot and to satisfy tangible needs within the church. Their ministry prevents the elders from being distracted, allows them to stay focused on what they're supposed to do. So spotting and satisfying tangible needs are the primary responsibilities of deacon work. Deacons have their eyes on the needs of the church and they love to brainstorm solutions so that the ministry of the word can flourish and the church of God, and the gospel can advance. As shock absorbers, as problem solvers, deacons are responsible for spotting and satisfying tangible needs. There's a second responsibility, and we're going to say that deacons 
Secondly, protect and promote church unity. Again, the seven were tasked with protecting and promoting unity within the Jerusalem church. This fault line was there. It was growing. It was increasing. It was real. If the seven had not found a solution, what would have happened? Church split. How many of you have ever heard of a Baptist church splitting? If you have never heard of a Baptist church splitting, that means you're probably a really early new young Christian and you've not been in a Baptist church long enough. We all have heard those stories. Why does it happen? It's because there's a need there that's not being met, and so they just split apart. There's a fight. There's a rift. We're still human beings. We still have clay feet. We still struggle with fleshly things. And so the deacons absorb the shockwaves that were reverberating throughout the congregation there in the early church. So they, they model for us the demeanor that's needed in deacons. These leading servants need humility. They need gentleness. They need flexibility. They need to possess conviction without being combative. I've met some deacons who were more combative than they were convictional, more than they were flexible, more than they were gentle. I'm grateful to God that we serve, uh, or I serve in this church, and we serve along deacons who are not those things. Man, they are flexible and loving and gentle and kind and convictional, and they're more concerned about people than they are about processes. We are a healthy church, and so I commend you, commend you as a people of God. But that's not what was happening here in this situation. There was a fraction taking place. And so the apostles have the church select and then they, 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 they deploy these servants to go and to fix the situation. What should a deacon have? He should have the characteristics that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know that chapter? It's the love chapter. It's the, it's the chapter that we always use when we're talking about romance and, and, and marriages. And it should be used from that standpoint. But what's happening in the church at Corinth that necessitates the letter from Paul? You've got a church that's deeply divided. So in one way, we could probably look at this letter and specifically what we see in chapter 13. And Paul's writing it obviously to commend them, or not commend, but to provoke them to do that. But I also believe there's a little bit of shame there. Hey, this is the way your life ought to look like, but it's not the way it looks like. So when we look at it from the standpoint of what should characterize deacons, they should be full of love, caring, concern for the people of God. Deacons protect and promote unity by working to help church members believe the best about one another, not reverberating the shockwaves, but giving the benefit of the doubt, being easy to please rather than easy to offend. There's a third responsibility, and it's they serve and support the ministry of the elders. I'm thankful that God has built structure and purpose into every facet of his creation. I mean, think about it. Everything has a structure. There's nothing that doesn't have structure. It's all there. This is not just a, a chaotic, free-for-all type of world. It's all structured. One of the things that I think all of us who go to the beach routinely like to do is to watch the sunrise or the sunset, depending on what type of person you are, right? Some of you are morning people like me. Some of you are not nocturnal people like my wife. And so, but you love the sunset or you love the sunrise. What happens every single day? Sunrise and a sunset. We don't have time to go into why that happens that way. But God has built structure into all of his creation. So within the church, there is structure. The Lord has embedded different layers of life-giving authority. 
So go with me for a moment. King Jesus is the shepherd of the church. He is the high priest. He is the head. The elders, what we see in the New Testament, are the ones who serve as under shepherds, who exercise authority and care over the church. They serve at the pleasure of King Jesus. He can add and he can remove them at any time. Deacons, as we read through the New Testament, are formal assistants to the elders. They serve, if you will, at the pleasure of the elders, not because elders are ultimate, but because Jesus is ultimate. He's the one who has structured the church. So the structure is how he designed it to function, and when it does so, there is health. What we see here in Acts 6 is a presentation, a clear distinction in roles and function. Deacons, in other words, what I'm saying is deacons are not elders and elders are not deacons. We're going to be in 1 Timothy 3 next Sunday. There's two lists of things, qualifications for these two offices. Why? It's because they're not the same office, though the qualifications are very similar. It's further is described, or, or this further description suggests that deacons are paired with and subordinate to the elders that they support. So deacons then are not a separate autonomous body of officials disconnected from the body of the overseers. Instead, what we see in 1 Timothy 3 is the diakonoi, which is plural for deacons, assisting the episkopoi, which is plural for overseers. They're working together. Deacons, a delegation of the overseers. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean. I'm not going to, this is a personal illustration of mine from a different church and a different time. <laughs> but I can remember, and I've had many discussions about the role of deacons and the churches that I've served, but I remember sitting in this one particular church, sitting with the deacons and having a discussion very similar to what we're talking about this morning. What is the role and responsibility of deacons? And I shared my viewpoint of what I believe the scripture lays out and what I've seen is most, health, most healthy in the life of the church. And, and I had a particular deacon in this meeting look at me and say, I was elected by the church to represent the church. And so I looked at him and I was like, you mean like a senator? So you see yourself as, a, as an elected senator representing yourself before the president or the pastor in this sense to kind of check my authority or my leadership. He's like, absolutely, that's, that's the role of deacon. And I'm like, can you show me that word in scripture? You know, I'm just, I, I, was, I was young, man. I was young and sometimes a little too brash and a little too free with my mouth. Hopefully I've curbed some of that as I've gotten older. But uh, I was respectful in that situation. But we, we fundamentally disagreed biblically on the role and the responsibilities of deacons. But that's the way he understood. That's the way, and unfortunately, many uh, churches look at deacons. And so really what they're functioning at here is is a pseudo-elder, and that's what they function. This church had one elder, it was the pastor, and they had deacons who were, in essence, pseudo-elders. They were deacons who functioned in the, in the capacity of elders. They did the business, they made the decisions. I sort of came and said, I think we should do, and they said yes or no. That's not what we see going on here in the New Testament. Deacons are not chaperones to the elders. Instead, what we see is godly de deacons executing the vision and the oversight of godly elders. These two offices are working together for unity and the advancement of the gospel. The seven here in this chapter assisted the apostles by relieving them of burdens by serving the widows. Shock absorbers and problem solvers, that's what deacons are, and they are responsible for serving and supporting the ministry of the elders. So the big question for us is this. 
What does it look like at Red Lane? Here's a statement I want to give you, and I want to flesh it out a little bit. I'll flesh it out in more detail next Sunday in our members' meeting. But for, for, here, uh, for us here at Red Lane, deacons are mobilizers of ministry who lead our ministry teams. For a number of years, the way our deacons have operated uh, has largely been consisting of two things, family ministry and benevolent ministry. So we have had a deacon body who have regular monthly meetings, but largely they're responsible for family ministry and benevolent ministry. Let me define what that has been. Family ministry is our deacons are placed over small groups. They're, 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 they provide a little bit of pastoral care over our small group ministry. So if there's a, a, an extra need or, or there's something that's there that the small group leadership can't feel like or doesn't feel like they meet themselves, then our deacons kind of step in and help to meet the need, whatever that need may be. That's family ministry. Largely, though, it's done by our small groups. The other side would be benevolent ministry. And so when there is a financial need of a member, maybe even sometimes a non-member, the deacons will decide how to step in and in what way, whether or not, and then how much we should contribute when there's a financial need. That's how we've operated for a number of years. Going forward, what we want to do is expand this mobilization of ministry by placing deacons over ministry teams that serve the body, and we have several of those. So they will serve as the leading servant, recruiting and developing a team of servants under their leadership. And as I said, we have several ministry teams today. You say, what are those? Well, some would be like homeless, uh, hospitality, audio video team as a ministry team. We have all kinds, and so our deacons will serve as the leading servant, providing leadership to those teams. Under this new format, uh, they're going to be able to serve in the area of giftedness and passion. Uh, I've told our deacons for a number of months, maybe even years, that if I was um, affirmed by the church as a deacon in our church and said, all right, your job is family ministry. I could do that and I could do that well. But I'll just be honest, it's not the area of giftedness or passion. I would be better suited doing something else. And I, I got to believe there's probably some of our deacons that that would be true of them as well. So what we want to do in this restructuring and redeployment is say, here's a man, here's a, a person, here's a servant of God who loves the Lord, loves people, has giftedness, has passion. Let's unleash that to better serve the body of Christ and to make a difference for the kingdom. That's what this is all about. So the deacons will be launched out by the elders to meet these ministry needs as needed within, within the congregation. In this restructuring, we will specifically create two new teams to carry out the primary ministry that they're leading right now. So we will create a member care team. So some of our deacons that, man, they are good at that. They probably will serve on that team. Or we'll have a benevolence team as well. They can serve on that. So we're not going to not have what we've had. We're going to have that and expand it even that much more. Next week we'll talk about requirements. And so I think this is going to give us hell from that standpoint. Because we're, we're saying, all right, it's not saying you, no one can, or only these certain people can serve on the team. What we'll be saying is these certain people and the requirements laid out in Scripture gives us a better, a better base for qualifications to lead those teams. And I'll flesh that out next Sunday. But this is going to be super healthy as we move forward as a church. There's a lot I want to say here. I want to make sure I say it all because we're laying, we're, we're setting the table, if you will, uh, for next Sunday. 
So as we think about deacons, and I need to wrap up, deacons are God's gift to the church. What I do not want anyone to hear in this is like, that pastor just wants to get rid of deacons. Not at all. I like Mark Duffer. Some of you don't like Mark Duffer, and I understand that. <laughs> but I, I like Mark Duffer, our chairman of deacons. I'm kidding. We all like Mark Duffer, a.k.a. Santa Claus. We're not restructuring to, to do away with. We're restructuring to say, let's go do more right? We understand the priority of deacon. We want to highlight that ministry. We want to fan the flame of that ministry and just unleash our leading servants to go and do, and to do so in the area of giftedness and passion, using all of the things that the Lord has laid out in his word as far as requirements and, and responsibilities and roles. So I thank God for the deacons that come alongside me and the elder elders and help us do what we do in the local church. Here's what we also know, and I said this last Sunday. You don't have to be a quote-unquote deacon or pastor to serve, right? We're all to do the diaconal work. We're all to be serving in the body of Christ. We're all to be playing our role, our part in the life of the church. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. When Peter writes that letter, he's not writing to just pastors. He's not writing to just deacons. He's writing to a church that is dispersed. And he says, each one of you have been given a gift, use it. So this morning, the big question for us as we move into a time of response is how are we using our gift? In what area? Are you gifted with vocals? You can sing. Are you gifted with musical talent? Can you play? If you're gifted with technical abilities, are you helping Jonathan and our other tech guys lead in that ministry? What are you doing? Maybe you're a gifted teacher. You understand the Word of God. You're good with doctrine. You're good with kids. You're good with adults. Where are you using the giftedness and the passions that you have to serve the body of Christ? You need to serve in that area. You need to serve. If you were to take me and stick me down there with Jennifer and the children, the kids would go nuts. They would hate it because I would be like trying to teach them really big, hard, long words. I would be talking way over there. That's not the area of my giftedness and passion. I am right where I need to be. And you need to be right where you need to be, serving, using your gifts. So as we move into a time of response, Rick, you can go ahead and come if you'd like. I'm going to pray in just a moment. I want you to think about that. I know many of you serve, but if you're not serving, I want you to just think about where can I plug in? And not just think about it, I want you to take an action step and say, all right, I need to find this out. So how do you do that? Approach one of our staff team members. Approach Jennifer if you're interested in, in, in children's ministry. Approach Nate, approach Nate if you're interested in student ministry. Talk to me or one of the elders if you're interested in some sort of adult ministry. If you're talking about music or, or things along those lines, talk to Ricky. If you're interested in the tech team, I'll, I'll just point you to our deacon, Jonathan Dixon, who leads our tech side. He could always use your help. In fact, we've had new people up there in recent days. It's been pretty encouraging to walk up there like, hey, there's a new face up here. Good. I'm glad that there's more people than just three running this train, driving this train. We've got more people joining that. So I want you to think about that this morning as we move into a response time. How can and where can I serve the body of Christ, serve the Lord as we go forward? And we would be remiss to forget what happens in verse 7. The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to 
the faith. Maybe this morning, as you sit here, the greatest need in your life is not to find a place to serve. The greatest need is for you to understand that Jesus has already served you through the crucifixion, the shed blood of Jesus we sing about. And you need to, by faith, put your trust and hope in him. So we move to a time of response. I want to encourage you to respond in whatever way the Lord lays. If you need to be saved today, I want you to come forward. I want to get you with one of our encouragers and walk through the gospel with you so you can do what they're doing in verse 7, becoming obedient to the faith. This morning, if you're a believer and a member of our church, I want you to just respond in whatever way you need to. Just say, Lord, I want to serve, and then take the, the actions needed to make that happen. If you need to come forward and say, I want to do this. I'm scared to death. Pastor, will you pray with me? I would love to do that.